Charles Spurgeon. A Charles Spurgeon podcast. The Sinner's Friend. Sermon number 556. Delivered in the year 1864 by Charles Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. Many true words are spoken in jest, and many tributes to virtue have been unwittingly paid by the sinister lips of malice. The enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ thought to brand him with infamy, hold him up to derision, and hand his name down to everlasting scorn as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. O short-sighted mortals, their scandal published his reputation. To this day, the Savior is adored by the title which was minted as a slur. It was designed to be a stigma that every good man would shudder at and shrink from. It is proved to be a fascination which wins the heart and enchants the soul of all the godly. Saints in heaven and saints on earth delight to sing of him. Savior of sinners, they proclaim. Sinners of whom the chief I am. What the invidious Jews said in bitter spite has been turned by the Holy Spirit to the most gracious account, where they poured out vials of hate Aromas of sacred incense arise. Troubled consciences have found a sweet balm in the very sound. Jesus, the friend of tax collectors and sinners, has proved himself friendly to them, and they have become friends with him. So completely has he justified the very name which his enemies gave him as a vulgar insult. We shall take this title of Jesus tonight as an order of distinction which sets forth his excellency. And as God helps us, we shall try to exalt his name and proclaim his fame while we attempt to explain how he was the friend of sinners and how he shows that he is still the same. Our Lord proved himself in his own time to be the friend of sinners. What better proof could he give than to come from the majesty of his father's house to the poverty of Bethlehem's manger? What better proof could he give than leaving the society of cherubim and seraphim to lie in the manger where the oxen fed and to associate himself with fallen men? The incarnation of the Savior in the very form of sinners taking upon himself the flesh of sinners, being born of a sinner, having a sinner for his reputed father, his very being a man, which is tantamount to being in the same form of sinners. Surely this was enough to prove that he is the sinner's friend. When you take up the record of his earthly lineage and begin to read through it, you'll be struck with the fact that there are only a few women mentioned in it, and yet two out of those mentioned were prostitutes, so that even in his lineage there was the stain of sin, and a sinner's blood would have run in his veins if he had been the true son of Joseph. 
But inasmuch as he was begotten by the Holy Spirit, who overshadowed the virgin, in him there was no sin. Yet his reputed pedigree ran through the veins of sinners. Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba are three names which bring to remembrance deeds of shame. And yet these stand in the records as the ancestors of the son of Mary, the sinner's friend. As soon as Jesus Christ, being born in the likeness of sinful flesh, had come to maturity and had commenced his real life work, he at once made known his friendship with sinners by associating with them. You do not find him standing at a distance, issuing his mandates and his orders to sinners to make themselves better, but you find him coming among them like a good workman who stands over his work. He takes his place where the sin and the iniquity are, and he personally comes to deal with it. He does not write out a prescription and send by another hand his medicines with which to heal the sickness of sin, but he comes right into the sick house, touches the wounded, looks at the sick, and there is healing in the touch, and there is life in the look. The great physician took upon himself our sicknesses and bore our infirmities and so proved himself to really be the sinner's friend. Some people appear to like to have a philanthropic love toward the fallen, but yet they would not touch them with a pair of tongs. They would lift them up if they could, but it must be by some machinery, some sort of contraption by which they would not degrade themselves or contaminate their own hands. But not so the Savior. Up to the very elbow, he seems to thrust that gracious arm of his into the mire to pull up the lost one out of the horrible pit and out of the miry clay. He takes the pickaxe and the spade himself and goes to work in the great quarry that he may get out the rough stones, which afterward he will himself polish with his own bitter tears and bloody sweat that he may make them fit to shine forever in the glorious temple of the Lord his God. He comes himself into direct personal contact with sin without being contaminated with it. He comes as close to it as a man can come. He eats and drinks with sinners. One day he sat at the tax collector's table and the tax collector had no doubt been a great extortioner in his time but Jesus sits there, and that day salvation came to that tax collector's house. Beloved, this is a sweet trait about Christ and proves how real and how true his love was, that he associated with sinners and did not shun even the chief of them. No, he not only came among them, but he was always seeking their good by his ministry. If there was a sinner anywhere, a lost sheep of the house of Israel, Christ was after that sinner. Never has there been such an indefatigable shepherd. He sought that which was lost until he found it. One of his earliest works of mercy we will tell you of briefly. He was once traveling through Samaria, and there lived in a city of that country a woman. And ah, the less said about her, the better. She had had five husbands, 
and he whom she then had was not her husband. She was a disgrace to that city of Samaria. But Jesus, who had a keen eye for sinners and a heart which beats high for them, means to save that woman, and he must, and he will have her. Being weary, he sits down on a well to rest. A special providence brings the woman to the well. The conventionalities of society forbid him to talk with her, but he breaks through the narrow bigotry of caste. He does not care that she is a Samaritan by birth, but will that most holy being lower himself to have conversation with such a dishonorable woman? He will. His disciples may marvel when they come back to find him talking with her, but he will do it. He begins to open up the word of life to her understanding. And that woman becomes the first Christian missionary we ever hear of. For she ran back to the city, leaving her water pot and crying, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they came and believed. And there was great joy in that city of Samaria. You know, too, that there was another sinner. He was a bad fellow. He had been constantly grinding the faces of the poor and getting more out of them by way of taxation than he should have done. But the little man was curious, and he must see the preacher, and the preacher must love him. For I say there was a wonderful attraction in Jesus to a sinner. That sinner's heart was like a piece of iron. Christ's heart was like a lodestone, and wherever there was a sinner, the lodestone began to feel it, and soon the sinner began to feel the lodestone too. Zacchaeus, said Christ, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And down comes the sinner, and salvation came to his house at that very hour. Oh, Christ never seemed to preach so sweetly as when he was preaching a sinner's sermon. I would have loved to have seen that dear face when he cried, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or better still, to have seen his eyes running with whole showers of tears when he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Or to have heard him preach those three great sermons about lost sinners when he described the woman as sweeping the house and taking away the dust that she might find the lost coin and the shepherd going from hill to hill after the wandering sheep, and the father running to welcome that rag-clad prodigal, kissing him with the kisses of love, clothing him with the best robe, and inviting him into the feast, while they danced and rejoiced, because the lost was found, and he who was dead was alive again. Why, he was the mightiest of preachers, for sinners, beyond a doubt. Oh, how he loved them. Never mind the Pharisees. He had thunderbolts for them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. But when tax collectors and prostitutes come, he always has the gate of mercy ajar for them.
For them, he always has some tender word, some loving saying, such as, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, and other such words of tender wooing. The very chief of sinners was thus drawn into the circle of his disciples. And you know, dear friends, he did not prove his love merely by preaching to them and living with them and by his patience in enduring their opposition against him and all their evil deeds and words, but he proved it by his prayers too. He used his mighty influence with the Father on their behalf. He took their polluted names on his holy lips. He was not ashamed to call them brothers. Their cause became his own and in their interest, his pulse throbbed. How many times on the cold mountains he kept his heart warm with love for them. How often the sweat rolled down his face when he was in an agony of spirit. For them, I cannot tell you. This much I do know, that on the same night when he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground, he prayed this prayer. After having prayed for his disciples, he went on to say, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Here, truly, the heart of the Savior was bubbling up and spilling over towards sinners. And you can never forget that almost his last words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Though willfully and wickedly they pierced his hands and feet, yet there were no angry words, but only that short, loving, hearty prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Ah, friends, if there was ever a man who was a friend to others, Jesus was a friend to sinners his whole life through. This, however, is little. As for the river of the Savior's love to sinners, I have only brought you to its banks. You have only stood on the bank and dipped your feet in the flood, but now prepare to swim. He was so fond of sinners that he made his grave with the wicked. He was numbered with the transgressors. God's fiery sword was drawn to strike a world of sinners down to hell, and it must fall on those sinners. But Christ loves them. His prayers stay the arm of God a little while, but still the sword must fall in due time. What is to be done? By what means can they be rescued? Swifter than the lightning's flash, I see that sword descending. But what is that I see? It falls. But where? Not on the neck of sinners. It is not their neck which is broken by its cruel edge. It is not their heart which bleeds beneath its awful force. No, the friend of sinners has put himself into the sinner's place. And then, as if he had been the sinner, though in him there was no sin, He suffers and bleeds and dies. And no common suffering, no ordinary bleeding, no death such as mortals know. It was a death in which the second death 
was comprehended. A bleeding in which the very veins of God were emptied. The God-man divinely suffered. I do not know how else to express the suffering. It was more than mortal agony. For the divine strengthened the human and the man was made mighty to endure through his being a God. Being God and man, he endured more than 10,000 millions of men all put together could have suffered. He endured the hells of all for whom he died. The torments or the equivalent of the torments which all of them ought to have suffered. The eternal wrath of God condensed and put into a cup too bitter for mortal tongue to know and then drained to its utmost dregs by the loving lips of Jesus. Beloved, this was love, that while we were still sinners, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This Christ has done And he is, therefore, demonstrated to be the friend of sinners. But the trial is over. The struggle is past. The Savior is dead and buried. He rises again. And after he has spent 40 days on earth, in that 40 days proving still his love for sinners, he rose again for their justification. I see him ascending up on high. Angels attend him as the clouds receive him. They bring his chariot from on high to bear him to his throne, clap their triumphant wings and cry, the glorious work is done. What a procession, what splendor. He will forget his poor friends, the sinners now, will he not? Not he. I can almost hear the song, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The light shines and the pearly gates are all flung wide open. And as he passes through, notice that the highest joy which swells his soul is that he has opened those gates, not for himself, for they were never shut on him, but that he has opened them for sinners. It was for this indeed that he died. And it is for this that he ascends on high, that he may open the kingdom of heaven for all believers. See him as he rides through heaven's streets. The scattered gifts of his coronation, the lavish bounties of his ascension are still for sinners. He is exalted on high. For what? To give repentance and forgiveness of sins. He still wears upon his breastplate the names of sinners. Upon his hands and upon his heart, he still bears the remembrance of those sinners. And every day, for the sinner's sake, he does not hold his peace. And for the sinner's sake, he does not rest, but cries unto God until every sinner shall be brought safely home. Every sinner who believes, every sinner who was given to him, Every sinner whom he bought with blood, he will not rest till all of them are gathered to be the jewels of his crown, world without end. I do not think we can say more. 
The Savior proved himself to be the sinner's friend. If there are any of you who dare to doubt him after this, I do not know what else to say. If there is anyone who has proved himself to be your friend, surely Jesus did, and he is willing to receive you now. What he has done, he still continues to do. Oh, that you might have grace to perceive that Jesus is the lover of your soul, that you might find the blessedness which all these tokens of friendship have brought for believing sinners. While we change the subject a little, we shall still keep to the text and notice what Christ is doing now for sinners. There is a deep principle involved here, a principle the Pharisee of old could not understand, and the cold heart of humanity is slow to embrace it even today. I have two explanations to offer of the way in which Jesus personally shows himself to be the friend of sinners, and I will just mention these before I come to the application of the subject I intend. Once upon a time, a woman was brought to Jesus by the scribes and Pharisees, and she was an adulteress. She had been taken in the very act. They tell the sinner's friend what sentence Moses would pronounce in such a case, and they ask him, What do you say? And they said this to test him. They were not much concerned about the unhappy creature. The accusation they were intent to lay was against the man of Nazareth. And you know how he disposed of the case and silenced her accusers. He did not bring the sinner up before the magistrate. No, neither would he act the judge's part and pronounce sentence. Rather, he would act the neighbor's part. He presented himself as a friend. There is a proverb among a certain class of hard-dealing tradesmen. We know no friendship in business. And they carry it out full well while they grind the faces of the poor without pity and strive to overreach one another without fairness. In like manner, there was no friendship, no mercy whatsoever among those gentlemen of the long robe. Their idea of righteousness stood in exacting justice with rigid severity. And as for wickedness, it was only shameful when it was found out. When they accused Jesus of winking at crime and harboring the criminal, he was truly laying the axe to the root of the tree and sheltering the victims while he upbraided the arrogant rulers whose secret vices were the genuine cause of the wretchedness which had fallen upon the nation. I commend this thought to your consideration. When it is said of him, he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners, it was implied that he was not a friend of scribes and Pharisees. Yet again, I want you to notice that the office which Christ came to fulfill towards sinners was that of pure, undivided friendship. Let us give you an illustration. There is an awful story abroad. A murder has been committed, and the poor wretch who committed it has cut his own throat. The police officer and the surgeon are quickly on the scene. The one comes there in the interest of law. The other attends in the interest of humanity. 
The police officer says, man, you are my prisoner. The doctor says, my dear fellow, you are my patient. And now he lays a delicate hand upon the wound. He staunches the blood, applies soft liniments, binds it up with plasters, and bending down his ear, listens to the man's breathing. Taking hold of his hand, he feels his pulse. Gently raising his head, he administers to him some wine or stimulant, takes him to the hospital, gives the nurse instructions to watch him, and orders that he shall be given a nutritious diet as he is able to bear it. Day after day, he still visits him and uses all his skill and all his diligence to heal the man's wounds. Is that the way to deal with criminals? Certainly it is not the manner in which the police deal. Their business is to find out all the evidences of his guilt. But the medical attendant is not concerned with the man as an evildoer, but as a sufferer. So it is with the sinner. Moses is the officer of justice who comes to arrest him. Christ is the good physician who comes to heal him. He deals with the disease, with the wounds, with the sufferings of sinners, and he is therefore their friend. Of course, the parallel will only go so far. In the instance of the murderer, the surgeon would hand his patient over to the officers as soon as his wound was recovered. But in the conduct of our Savior, he redeems the soul from under the law and delivers it from the penalty of sin as well as restores it from the self-inflicted injuries. But oh, if I could only show you that Christ treats the sinner with pity rather than with indignation, that the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, that his visit to our world was mediatorial, not to condemn the world, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Surely then you would see reason enough why the sinner should look to him as a friend indeed. Ah, then I would go further. I would entreat you to make the case your own. You are a sinner. Can I not convince you that he is your friend? You were sick the other day. The physician looked very concerned and whispered something to your wife. She did not tell you what it was, but your own life trembled in the balance, and it is a wonder you are here tonight. Shall I tell you why you are here? Do you see that tree over there? It has been standing in its place for many years, but it has never yielded any fruit. And several times the master of the garden has said, Cut it down. The other day the woodcutter came with his axe. He felt its edge. It was sharp, and he began to cut the chips were flying, and he made a deep gash. But the gardener came by, one who had watched over the tree and had hope for it even yet. And he said, Spare it, spare it yet a little longer. The wound you have made may heal, and I will dig around it and fertilize it. And if it brings forth fruit, spare it another year. And if not, then cut it down. That tree is yourself. The woodcutter is death. The chipping at the trunk of the tree was your sickness. Jesus is the one who spared you. 
You would not have been here tonight. You would be there in hell among damned spirits, howling in unutterable woe if it had not been that the friend of sinners had spared your life. And where are you tonight? Perhaps, my hearers, this is an unusual place for you to be. Your Sunday evenings are not often spent in the house of God. There are other places which know you, but your seat there is empty tonight. There has been much persuasion to bring you here, perhaps, and it may be that you have come against your will, but some friend has asked you to join him, and here you are. Do you know why you are here? It is a friendly providence, managed by the sinner's friend, which has brought you here, that you may hear the sound of mercy and have a loving invitation offered to you. Be grateful to the Savior that he has brought you to the gospel pool. And may you, oh, may you this night be made to step in and be washed from sin. It is kind of him and proves how true a friend of sinners he is that he has brought you here. I will leave you now where you are and I will tell you how he has dealt with other sinners for perhaps this may lead you to ask him to deal the same with you. I know a sinner, and I very well remember him when he was hard of heart and an enemy of God by a multitude of wicked works. But this friend of sinners loved him, and passing by one day, he looked right into his soul with such a look that his hard heart began to break. There were deep pains as though a birth of a divine sort was coming. There was an agony and there was a grief unutterable and that poor soul did not think it kind of Jesus, but indeed it was kindness too intense to ever fully estimate. For there is no saving a soul except by making it feel its need of being saved. There must be in the work of grace an emptying and a pulling down before there can be a filling and a building up. For many years that soul knew no peace and the soul of its foot had no rest. But one day I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one. Stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus, and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy days be bright. I looked to Jesus, and I found in him my star, my sun, and in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. Ah, Christ is the friend of sinners. So say I, and so will I say, while this poor, lisping, stammering tongue can articulate a sound. And I think God had a design 
of abundant mercy when he saved my soul. I would not then have believed it, though a mother's loving voice might have whispered it in my ears, but he seems to remind me of it over and over again till love and terror mingle in my chest, saying, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. O my blessed master, you gave charge to my tongue when you constrained my soul. Am I a chosen vessel? It is to bear his name to sinners. As a full bottle seeks vent, so must my testimony pant for utterance. O sinner, if you trust him, he will be such a friend to you. And if now you have a broken heart and a contrite spirit, these are his work, and it is a proof of his great love to you if he has made you to hunger and thirst for him. Let me impress upon you that Jesus is the friend of the friendless. She who had spent all her money on physicians without getting relief obtained a cure gratis when she came to him. He who had nothing to pay gets all his debts canceled by this friend. And he who was ready to perish with hunger finds not only a passing meal, but a constant supply at his hands. We know of a place in England where there is a portion of bread served to every passerby who chooses to ask for it. Whoever he may be, he just has to knock at the door of St. Cross Hospital and there is bread for him. Jesus Christ so loves sinners that he has built a St. Cross Hospital so that whenever a sinner is hungry, he just has to knock and have his needs supplied. No, he has done better. He has attached to this hospital of the cross a bath. And whenever a soul is black and filthy, it only has to go there and be washed. The fountain is always full, always efficacious. There is no sinner who ever went into it and found that it could not wash away his stains. Sins which were scarlet and crimson have all disappeared and the sinner has been made whiter than snow. And as if this were not enough, there is attached to this hospital of the cross a wardrobe and a sinner making application simply as a sinner with nothing in his hand, but being just empty and naked, he may come and be clothed from head to foot. And if he wishes to be a soldier, he may not merely have an undergarment, but he may have armor, which will cover him from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And if he wants a sword, he shall have that given to him, and a shield too. There is nothing that his heart can desire that is good for him, which he shall not receive. And he shall have an eternal heritage of glorious treasure when he enters into the joy of his Lord. Beloved, I cannot tell you all that Christ has done for sinners, but this I know, that if he meets with you tonight and becomes your friend, he will stand by you to the very end. He will go home with you tonight. No matter how many sets of stairs you have to go up, Jesus will go with you. No matter if there is no chair to sit down on, he will not disdain you. You may be hard at work tomorrow, but as you wipe the sweat from your brow, 
He will stand by you. You will perhaps be despised for his sake, but he will not forsake you. You will perhaps have days of sickness, but he will come and make your bed in your sickness for you. You will perhaps be poor, but your bread shall be given to you and your water shall be sure, for he will provide for you. You will grieve his spirit. You will often doubt him. You will go after other lovers. You will provoke him to jealousy, but he will never cease to love you. You will perhaps grow cold to him and even forget his dear name for a time, but he will never forget you. You may perhaps dishonor his cross and damage his fame among the sons of men, but he will never cease to love you. No, he will never love you less. He cannot love you more. This night, he weds himself to you. Faith shall be the wedding ring which he will put upon your finger. He pledges his loyalty to you. Though you should him oft times forget, his loving kindness fast is set. His heart shall be so true to you that he will never leave you nor forsake you. You will come to die soon, but the friend of sinners who loved you as a sinner and would not cast you off will be with you when you come to the sinner's doom, which is to die. I see you going down the sloping banks of the Jordan, but the sinner's friend goes with you. Ah, dear heart, he will put his arm beneath you and bid you not to fear. And when in the thick shades of that grim night, you expect to see a fearful visage, the grim face of death, you shall see instead his sweet and smiling face, bright as an evening star. And you shall hear him say, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. After a time, you will land in the world of spirits. But will the sinner's friend forsake you then? No, he will be pleased to make you his own. He will meet you on the other side of the Jordan, and he will say, Come, my beloved, I have loved you with an everlasting love and have bought you, though you were a vile sinner, and now I am not ashamed to confess you before my holy angels. Come with me, and I will take you to my Father's face and will confess you there also. And when the day shall come in which the world shall be judged, he will be your friend then. You will sit on the bench with him. At the right hand of the judge, you will stand, accepted in him who was your advocate and who is now your judge to acquit you. And when the end comes, and the world is rolled up like a worn-out garment, and these arching skies shall have passed away like a forgotten dream, when eternity with its deep-sounding waves shall break upon the rocks of time and sweep them away forever, then, on that sea of glass mingled with fire, you will stand with Christ, your friend still, making you his own, despite all your misbehavior in the world which has gone, and loving you now, loving you on as long as eternity shall last. Oh, what a friend is Christ 
to sinners, to sinners. Now, remember that we have been talking about sinners. There is a popular notion that Jesus Christ came into the world to save respectable people and that he will save decent sorts of folks. That those of you who go regularly to a place of worship and are good sorts of people will be saved. Now, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And who does that mean? Well, it includes some of us who have not been permitted to go into outward sin, but it also includes within its deep, broad compass, those who have gone to the utmost extent of iniquity. Talk of sinners. Walk the streets by moonlight, if you dare, and you will see sinners then. Go to the jail and walk through the wards and see the men with heavy, overhanging brows, men whom you would not like to meet out at night. And there are sinners there. Go to a detention center and see those who have revealed an early and juvenile depravity, and you will see sinners there. Go across the seas to the place where a man will gnaw a bone upon which there is human flesh, and there is a sinner there. Go where you will and search earth to find sinners, for they are common enough. You will find them in every lane and street of every city and town and village and hamlet. It is for such that Jesus died. If you will find for me the grossest specimen of humanity, I will have hope for him yet, because the gospel of Christ has come to sinners, and Jesus Christ has come to seek and to save sinners. Electing love has selected some of the worst to be made the best. Redeeming love has bought, specially bought, many of the worst to be the reward of the Savior's passion. Effectual grace calls out and compels many of the vilest of the vile to come in. And this is why I have tried tonight to preach my master's love to sinners. Oh, by that love, looking out of those eyes in tears, oh, by that love, streaming from those wounds, flowing with blood, by that faithful love, that strong love, that pure, selfless, and abiding love, oh, by the heart of the Savior's compassion, I implore you not to turn away as though it were nothing to you, but believe in him and you shall be saved. Entrust your souls to him and he will bring you to his Father's right hand in glory everlasting. May God give us a blessing for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon originally preached by Charles Spurgeon. Some of the older language has been updated. Feel free to duplicate and distribute this material, but please do not charge anyone for it or in any way alter the content without permission. You can support this ministry by subscribing, liking, following, sharing, and leaving us positive reviews. Most importantly, please join with us in praying that God would use these sermons to both save those who are lost and impassion his people for his glory.